All right. Thank you so much, everybody, again, for listening in to the Renewal Minds podcast, The Happy Hour. I am so grateful for your feedback and just just y'all loving on Renewal Minds and just listening to this real stuff. Um, today, we are talking about a real topic. You know, if I go see a therapist, does that mean I have a mental illness? And I'm going to just tell y'all now, I see a therapist. But I'm going to just let the expert talk um, and let her, you know, we're going to ask them some questions and just keep it real and honest. I'm going to let her introduce herself and then we're going to get um, on into our conversation. So, Jessica, go ahead and tell us who you are. Well, I told y'all her name, but, you know, she got more to say. <laughs> to the people. Hey. <laughs> so my name is Jessica Jefferson. I go by Jess. Um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a qualified supervisor in the states of Florida, New Jersey, and Minnesota. I own a group practice here in sunny South Florida in Davie called SW Social Support. We are where everyone's go-to person finds money can go to. Um, yes. I specialize in intersectionality of faith and mental health, particularly I help other healers and helpers heal. Um, so my primary publications that I work with are first responders, clergy, veterans, and other therapists. Wow. Who that I see are those that are running to place everybody else is running out of. Yeah. And I think the main thing that I want to focus on throughout all of this is that we all share a human experience. So people think about like therapy and all of like the heebie-jeebies behind it, if you will. Yeah. The stigma, the yuckies. Mm-hmm. Um, that com- particularly for people of color, for Christians, people of faith, um, we definitely demonize needing help to navigate our humanity. Um, and I think it is so ever important that we normalize that because of all the things that we learn. And even as a clinician, and I have years and years of experience outside of graduate school in private practice, working for several really big organizations, including the government, um, that we are never really taught how to be human. We learn like math, reading, writing, all of the things. Um, but when loneliness, anger, depression, sadness, frustration come about, we're just kind of told to kind of like suck it up, deal through with it, pray fast, you know, read your Bible, uh, watch TV, eat something, you know, we don't really get the skills that we need to really cope and navigate through life or humanity. So I think that being a clinician, it gives me the unique opportunities that people can help them navigate their own humanity Uh and their own experiences and put um, other narratives and other words to them other than words that have been given to them or voices that have been forced upon them. Um, Uh So I think it's really important when we look at all of the pieces and parts, even when it comes down to like diagnoses and like the labels and the stigmas associated with it, like, anything else it's a cluster of things that we kind of like a box we fit into if you will right um so looking at it is just that like when i go and i look for meat i look for like organic grass-fed you know range free like the whole night i look for things within a certain category mm-hmm. i don't just go right into the beef section and pick anything up i don't go right to the egg section. i literally look i'm looking for cage-free brown eggs organic blah 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 Right. And once they check all of those, they, they meet for what the criteria I was looking for. And that essentially is what the mental health diagnosis is. It's essentially a cluster of symptoms that explain a behavior and or a symptomology that someone is experiencing. Maybe something happened to you and now you have intrusive thoughts or you have, uh, you 
smell things that remind you of another place and then you end up in kind of like a dark or cloudy space, some of those criteria meet for PTSD. That doesn't mean that you're crazy. That means that something has happened to your body and or your mind and you are responding according to what has or is happening for you. And when we look at mental health from that framework of something happened, has happened, or is happening that is producing an outcome, whether it's favorable or not, that allows us to kind of look at ourselves from a different lens versus, oh, they're crazy, they hear voices, um, they're demon-possessed, they don't love Jesus, you know, they ain't come by the blood, you know, they, they family sin it and stuff. We're not, it's 2021, y'all, we're not doing that. Please, please stop the foolish. Yeah. <laughs> Your mama didn't sin, that's all, that's all we have the impression. That's not, that doesn't even make sense. Like, right. why? Yeah, that's good, Jess. I mean, listen, we don't even need to talk no more. You just told me a mouthful. Um, and I, and, and I wanted to say, in your opinion, and I've talked to a few mental health professionals about this, we would say the church has done a, a pretty decent job with now trying to address this ideal of mental health. But I still see this lagging behind when it pertains to therapists. Everybody wants to go to their pastor and my pastor, my pastor, my pastor, my pastor. What do you think, you probably already said this, but what do you think is still that that grip that holds the church specifically on, hey, let me go, let me go see a, a, somebody that's professional. I, 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 that baffles me because I'm not like, you know what, I'm going to skip my oncologist and go to my pastor. Nobody's doing that. <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to skip out on my mental and emotional wellness and talk to my pastor. Your pastor, mm-hmm. it, it's an office. It is a God-given appointed office, right? The mm-hmm. Bible talks about the role of a bishop, a husband of one wife, sober, vigilant, blah, blah, blah. Children rise up, all of those things. It's, it's a role. Right. Therapy is a profession, like I had to go to school. There's letters behind my name. Put some respect on my credentials, right? It's a process. Yeah. Yeah. I wake up and decide that I was going to be that. Not that pastors wake up and decide that they're going to be a pastor. I, I right. love and respect and honor the role of a pastor. But I think it's very important as congregants that we don't put someone in a position that's going to later on vilify them. Ah. Because we now put a human who has the office of a pastor who is meant to be a shepherd to watch for our souls. The office of a pastor is to be the watchman on the wall for souls, to prepare the word for the congregation, to make sure that people are going through and growing in their faith. It is not to solely or in part take on the role of other professionals. Mm -hmm. And I believe that particularly in the black church, that since there's been so much stigma surrounding what that looks like, and therapy's been a white folk, a crazy person kind of thing, like, and we don't right. talk about it, we haven't had the outlet or known how or where to go. Thus, the pastor has become all things to all men, like Paul talks about. Yeah. Um, however, not every pastor is equipped to counsel in a way that relates to your mental health. There's good godly counsel, which we should speak up from our pastors and our leadership, and we should be praying and fasting and honoring the man or woman of God in our life. Absolutely 4,000%. But the same way I would not talk to my pastor with my OBGYN issues, you know, when I go to for a a cancer consult, we need to understand the role and the appropriateness of that role. Mm -hmm. And I think luckily, at least for us in this day and age, because therapy is like very pop culture in and you know Kanye's coming out with all of what he got going on and everyone's talking yeah. about therapy and mm-hmm. Tamar tried to kill herself and all this other stuff is going on it's a lot more prevalent in the back than the black community I believe mm-hmm. August Alcina has me the other day um 
I think Kid Capri yesterday talked about how he's been battling with depression and suicidal ideations. People are writing about it in their rap songs. So it's a lot more mainstream um, socially than it has been ever in any time before, particularly in black and brown communities. And more so now, churches are getting hip, air quote, to, to gain that it's not all a spiritual thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, and there's mm. definitely spiritual aspects to everything. Right. everything spiritual is definitely mirrored by what's happening in the natural and vice versa. However, comma, with that being said, I don't believe that every mental illness is a spiritual disorder. Like, I don't think even based on like brain scans, we look at depression, like you can see depression in the brain. That's not Mm. a spiritual thing, you know? Um, I do think that spiritual things can lead into or cause or exacerbate Mm -hmm. um, certain things, but I don't think that they are the like the main causation so while they can maybe you have some church hurt and you were abandoned by the church and now you have some paranoid tendencies maybe you isolate and you're depressed and Mm. the causation was an incident reflecting or as a result of being a part of it wasn't about like your spirituality god people hurt you the church hurt you people so there's got to be the separation of those two pieces Mm -hmm. as well as not creating a role for the pastor to be and then dogging him out when he can't or she can't fulfill that role mm. we want our pastors to be abba father daddy whoever and we want to run to pastor and get all of these things knowing that they're not equipped for that like our pastor might have went to school to be an accountant and god called into the ministry yeah yeah you got sir with a cpa and uh, an agree and, and a degree and a master's in business administration trying to help you navigate through mental health issues that they are not well versed in so mm-hmm. i think one the onus is on us to say okay well this is not the role of my pastor, um, unless your pastor is a licensed clinician, like my pastor is not, but we have actually like a licensed clinician and a mental facility on our church property. So we offer that to the community. Um, Yes, Pentab International is amazing. Listen, I'm about to come and check that out. (laughs) Yes. Pastor S. Robert Stewart at Pentecostal Tabernacles. We focus on Jesus. Uh, it is an amazing, amazing, amazing place. I go mm-hmm. to a predominantly Jamaican church, which is even worse, less unheard of that we have a mental facility on our property. Yes. yes. Um, we have a food bank. Um, we have, we just have, we have a school. We have a lot of things that are very, like, for particularly for people of island descent. My pastor is like 70 something. So it's, he's way beyond. Yeah. Um, his cohort as far as the events and looking into preparing and providing services he calls me referrals all the time Jessica so when somebody came to my office and they need to come see you I refer them to you like and he's aware of where his scope ends yeah I do however think that it is important if you have a relationship with your pastor you can go to your pastor first to say hey pastor this is where I'm struggling that your pastor has resources they can say hey go here do this <clears throat> excuse me and provide you that because that's generally where we're safest you know yeah yeah. It's a hospital for the hurting. So it's natural that we go to our leadership for that. But it's also important that we understand where where their role ends mm-hmm. and not put them in where they are having to work outside of their role in, in order to fill a need or meet a need within the congregation. So right. I think it's definitely a double-edged sword from the pastors to know this is not like my lane. And then mm-hmm. from the congregants to be okay with saying, like, I can definitely have Jesus in a therapist. I can talk mm-hmm. to my pastor and talk to a professional counselor at the same time. So I think it's kind of like that the gray area is so gray and so dark. Right. Um, and it's essentially kind of like slowly shining light into figuring out how to navigate. Mm-hmm. Because up until recently, I didn't know very many black and brown clinicians. So mm-hmm. now I'm going to somebody who doesn't look at me, doesn't understand my experience. I'm explaining to them my narrative, my bench, my norms, my culture, my like what all the things that should have been like, say less. 
Yeah. I got you. I feel that no problem. So yeah. having all those pieces and parts to then have to also battle against have been things historically that have been very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are so many black and brown clinicians out available, competent, yeah. competent, capable, clinically sound in their lane clinicians that are desirous to people elevate them. And I think that also having access to that has been very, very helpful. Um, We pride ourselves in my practice. We have Jamaicans and Haitians and Bahamians and people from like all over with different, like Mm -hmm. just different walks of life, you know? Mm -hmm. And when somebody comes in from that particular walk or life or sect of being, they don't have to explain who they are, why they are that way, how their parents reared them and, oh, because I'm Haitian. Nope, I get it. Say less. Yeah, like I, I completely understand. I, I, them zoes. I totally get it. I have clients from like, up oh, zoe. I mean, I get it. Like when they go talk about talk about their moms, I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally my mom's the same way. Yeah, and being able to have that me too experience to understand that like you don't want to be rolling around somebody's ultra with a white sheet on with olive oil poured down your back and just people <laughs> just hopping in like hot breath all over you and you still leave depressed or addicted to pornography. Like right. and you feel like you've at that point failed. You got something different. Um, mm-hmm. I think that in this current day and age where we are, it's prime picking for people to really engage in good solid clinical practices with good solid clinicians yeah and that's good Jess I mean it's it's so good that you're sharing this information because people are you know I say we because we we just don't know and and I think you know TV has done a great job at just making therapy and mental health look so like people are in a crisis unit every single time they go see therapy and so you know, what is this, you know, the question is, you know, if I go see a therapist, does that mean I am clinically diagnosed and I have a mental illness? It depends. So I believe everybody's diagnosed with something. So we'll start there. I believe everybody can fit into somebody's box of something, right? Okay. However, it depends on how you're going to therapy. If you're going through your insurance, your therapist must diagnose you. In order for you to be able to receive services through your insurance, that's through an EAP, that's through your Cygnas, your your Magellans, your Aetnas, all of those providers, they require the physician to diagnose you, the physician, aka the therapist, the provider, to yeah. diagnose you hmm. in order to track and measure the need for services, just like everything else. Right. Um, if you have hypopressure, they're going to ask you what the measure of that blood pressure was in order to diagnose and provide medicine. So in order for us to justify treatment, we must diagnose. Mm-hmm. Um, that does not mean that every diagnosis is a heavy hitter. Every diagnosis is not as heavy as schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, or PTSD. You may have just generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. You may just have a major depressive episode where you're having a time frame of something going on. You may have an adjustment disorder um, and none of those things in and of themselves are bad. Even PTSD symptoms are not bad things. Those are simply the culmination of the symptoms you're presenting with. So mm-hmm. let's say again, so for depression, you've had six weeks or you've been depressed, feeling ill and well for six months, not getting out of bed, um, decreased enjoyment and pleasurable activities, decreased appetite. And these are measures they say, then they ask you, if you have six out of this, you meet criteria. Mm-hmm. So your clinician will and should go over with you if you are ever forming that and say, hey, you know, this is what, what you're meeting for, pull out the DSM and walk you through, explain to you why, and mm-hmm. also normalize that process. When you go to the doctor for anything, the diagnosis is like they're always going to be a diagnosis of some sort. So yeah. it is our job as medical providers to look into figuring out what is happening. Do I diagnose absolutely everybody that sits on my couch or across from me virtually? No. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they were just struggling because it's Tuesday, you know, it's, they, they had a rough, they had a rough Tuesday and they're just struggling in Tuesday. They're struggling yeah. in their humanity, they're struggling in a new role, they're struggling with um, a life transition and that may just be adjustment disorder, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it is not a mandate unless you're going through insurance. So if you're going to let your insurance benefits know that your clinician is mandated to provide a diagnosis of some sort. That does not mean that you are crazy, you're unemployable, you should just stop going out the house. That's not what that means. Um, again, it's a symptom cluster. So if you have, you know, your blood sugar is X number, you have diabetes or you have this level of salt in your blood, you have high blood pressure. Um, And that is a measure used to describe your symptoms of what's happening in your body. And that's what a diagnosis is. It's literally a cluster of symptoms that you are presenting with and or have had historically and or presently that are impeding or interfering with your activities of daily living. So if you're depressed and you do not want to get out of bed, you do not want to shout and take care of your kids, you're not crazy. You're having a moment, air quote, if you will. And mm-hmm. that is what we, that's the term that we use to describe it based on what you're experiencing. So we're able to explain to you based on this experience, this is, a, this is what we can name this. We can give it a name. We can explain to you what it is, how it's showing up, how it's manifested typically in others and what's going on as well as ways to help you treat and address it because we know mm-hmm. what it is. Yeah. So, okay. I wouldn't. Have, I wouldn't even known that. You know, I. That's that's not valuable information. Y'all, I hope y'all heard what Jessica said because that is viable to know if you're going through your insurance. Um, and here's a question: Y'all, you're not therapists. Private practice therapists aren't seeing actively psychotic people, are they? And Some people do. Some people see oh, okay. people that have SPMIs. Um, we do not see people with SPMIs, severe and persistent mental illness, because we are not linked to a psychiatrist. Okay. Um, but there are people who are actively hearing voices every single day, who's taking their medicine and have it under control to where they're able to meet all of that daily living, that mm. are seeing people in private practice. There are wow. psychologists in private practice, psychiatrists in private practice. There's, like, you don't have to go to a community mental health center to be an SBI. If you have hallucinations and delusions and all of the things that we consider like the real crazies, air quote, which I don't really think is real crazy. Um, right. Again, it's a symptom of, you know, the mental health issues that you are presenting with the challenges you may have, but there are definitely clinicians that specialize in SPMIs in private practice. People specialize in personality disorders like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. They work in private practice. They, they create a niche so that that kind of population, that clientele knows I'm safe with so-and-so. Wow. That is so good to know. And you know, I've, I've worked in an agency and when I've had a client that was actively psychotic, the therapist would be like, well, we can't see her right now. She doesn't meet criteria. And for me, I don't know, you know, at the time I'm a case manager, I'm just trying to get my client resources, you know? Um, And so just hearing you saying that, that's kind of relief. So people who may be, you know, there are private practice therapists out there who specialize just in that. Absolutely. And just because you're actively hallucinating doesn't mean that you can't get treatment you know like I've worked um on a unit of people who spent most of their day in psychosis and active psychosis um I have had clients they're like lizards told me I need to kill you most of the lizards say like if that's where they are in that moment you know meet them there and Mm -hmm. the last thing somebody wants to feel in therapy is crazy 
Yeah. Like the last thing you want to feel in therapy with your therapist is isolated and as though you don't belong, something's wrong with you. And if you're actively hallucinating, those hallucinations are not bothering you or causing harm or impeding like what's going on. People, people hear voices all day long and are able to function throughout society and meet all of their goals and do what they need to do. Um, I think that because pop culture vilifies psychosis um, and makes psychosis seem similar to demon possession, that we're all like, oh, oh, he got a spirit. Mm. Oh, such, such, got such, such going on. Like, nah, like, there are things like olfactory hallucinations where you smell things that aren't actually there. Mm. Really? Yeah. Um, so it's not just audio and visual hallucinations. There are different types of hallucinations and different types of presentations of hallucinations and or psychosis. Mm. Um, you can believe that you're Mohammed Gandhi and you're, you have a delusional, like you're delusional, you're paranoid, and that's a psychotic episode, but you're not dangerous. You think you're Gandhi. You're not dangerous. Yeah. You think that you're Jesus Christ himself. You know what I mean? Like, unless you're like yeah. trying to walk on water, yeah. you know, let's try and go through bad people in the middle of the Jordan on 95. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. they're like, people believe they're giraffes and like yeah. they go through life believing they're a giraffe, get tattooed up and whatever. And they're able to live their normal air quote giraffe life. There's that lady thinks she's a cat. Then tattooed her whole face, become a cat, put cat injections in her cheeks. She got whiskers. And she's go to work every day. She wow. got a whole job. Well, she's cat. functioning. And listen, you never know, right? You never right. know. Right. And if you can function, that's important. Like, even if you're functioning to some level of dysfunction, you can get through, like, that's progressive. Mm. There are people who have psychosis that literally, like, it stops them dead in their trust and they can't do anything. Yeah. Those people may not be a really great fit for private practice because they need some additional help, Mm. um, maybe some higher acuity, like inpatient, Mm. um, intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization programs. They may need some additional resources in order to really be able to benefit from therapy in a traditional sense, like some medication management, other things in order to really like couple with that. Uh Um, But there's no like prescript. If you have this, you have to go to an inpatient program outside of like, if you're suicidal, homicidal, decide you want to hurt somebody else or yourself. Like there's things where you're no longer able to make decisions for yourself where you need to be hospitalized. Or if your SPMI is so persistent that you end up being hospitalized for multiple periods of multiple um, inpatient stays at a time. If you're in Florida, it's a Baker Act. California, there's different ways you can determine, you can, there's terminology for that inability to keep yourself safe due to having suicidal, homicidal ideations. Um, but not everyone that goes to Baker Act unit is hallucinating or is crazy. Like Mm -hmm. maybe they experienced death or loss or grief or they got fired and it's challenging about themselves and they just lose hope. Like they're helpless and hopeless. Yeah. Now, Jess, we talked about this whole demon thing. What do you say to a pastor who comes to you and say, you know, Jess, I really appreciate what you do, but this client, I, I know for a fact she is, she told me she has schizophrenia and I've seen her talking to herself, and I really think that's a demon. So we're going to perform our exorcist. And, and they say, well, what are your thoughts on that? I know you admit that, but we want to know what's your thoughts before we do it. I don't know, like, why. My initial thought was just to chuckle. Like, yeah. it just, like, it just, my initial thought was just to chuckle. Yeah. Um, just because, like, one, I don't see a pastor really coming to me to do that or in general. Yeah. <laughs> I also see if that someone's listening in the spirit, they're probably laying hands on and Sean doing up all before they even talk to anybody. Right. Um, 
just as also as an altar work intercessor, like I also know like how I move in the spirit. Mm-hmm. If I think the spirit that needs not be there, I will definitely address that in the spirit. Um, and so like I don't see somebody like, oh, okay, well, I think this is what it is, and coming and asking permission to to free somebody from bondage, air quote. Um, right. So I don't see that necessarily happening. Um, I I have heard I've never seen or experienced that schizophrenia is demon possession. So right. I wouldn't go and say that I've ever seen whether that be in my spiritual walk as a Christian or clinically that the two are tied hand in hand or are one in the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would imagine the the pastor would do what he needs to do as a pastor. Yeah. Like, I need to do what I need to do as a clinician. I wouldn't ask somebody who was suicidal to go talk to their pastor. I would perform in my role as a clinician. And I would I would assume a pastor would do the same thing. So if yeah. it's their job to watch for our souls and to guard us, make sure things are going well, they wouldn't need my permission to go through and ask. I I would I would hope and assume that they would go initially into doing what they need to intervene just like I would do if something was wrong with somebody and they were in my office whether you're a pastor whoever and they were unwell mm-hmm. and it was a situation I would have to do what I needed to do professionally and I believe that the pastor would do the same thing yeah I think that's probably why I chuckled because I was like that's that's like I I understand the question but I also don't see it like actually happening in practice happening, yeah I asked I had a um when I worked at the agency I had a, a father who asked who was a pastor, he didn't really ask us. Once again, I was a case manager, so he knew I didn't I, I, I didn't have anything to say, but he definitely felt like his daughter was demon-possessed and he was going to take her to get exorcism. And he wanted us to know, wanted us to, wanted our opinion on how we felt. And at the time, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> let me talk to a therapist and let me, because I, I, you know, I don't want to be like, yeah, go do it. I'll be like, no, I don't do it because this is, you know, I don't have the terminology all the time. So mm-hmm. I think your answer is good because you're right. As the pastor, your shepherd in the church, God is giving you the ability to see things that mm-hmm. I may not, if it, you know, and just like you're not going to ask me, hey, Lawanda, do you think it's a good idea if I take this client and go ahead and get them bigger? Right? You're going to do it. So. Right. That that's a good that's a good thing. Do you find in your church alone, or not even putting your church out there, or just churches alone? Do you find that people are always kind of coming to you, like say, "Hey, Jess, you know, I've been having a hard time. Can I see you?" Or feel like they want to try and have a therapy session right in their conversation? Oh no, my boundaries are a one. They are a one. Boundaries. Um, I heard that boundaries. When I am at church, I am Sister Jessica. I'm not your therapist, your auntie. No, I am there for the Lord. Um, and that is my role. Um, I, like I said, I do get referrals from my church for people to like come for therapy. This mm-hmm. is my call. This is what I got going on. Oh, let me, make, let me give you a referral because yeah. one, I think it's really important as clinicians and as Christians that we have and we honor our parts, right? So there's a part of me that is a therapist. There's a part of me that's a wife. Mm-hmm. Probably it's a sister, that's a friend, that's all these things. And I don't have to be all of them at the same time. So on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday night during Bible study, I am Sister Jessica. I am on the youth committee. I am helping with the Y Love. I am married to my media ministry. I am Brother Jesse's wife. I will help with Sunday school. I will work at altar. And that is, that is my role. I think it's really, really important that we don't allow one of our roles to like superimpose who we are that we just get caught up in our roles and our criteria mm-hmm. i will however come as somebody like in crisis who needs to talk i'll answer my phone say what's going on how are you you know whatever like as a human yeah okay no problem like let's try and get you safe do we need to get you wherever i've baker acted some of my dearest friends um they've called and been not okay and i've driven them to 
the hospital, I fill out the form and drop them off, like to make sure that they were able to get help. But I was not at any time their clinician. Like they're talking like, oh, you know, I really felt like driving my car off the side of the road. Oh, really? Mm. Like yeah. it happened. I was at with a friend at dinner over sushi and she was like, yeah, she came down to see me. And she was like, it took me a long time because I thought I was going to drive my car off the road several times. And I was okay with that. So I had to slow down. No problem, wow. sis. I'm about to drive you to a Baker Act receiving facility and this is why. Wow. And she was here on vacation and we surely drove her right over to Aventura Hospital. Yeah. And checked her right in, came and visited her the whole time she was there. When she checked out, we brought her home, like stayed with us for a couple of days. And that's what it was. Like that to me is my charge as a Christian and as a clinician is to really do no harm. Yeah. Um, but I'm not walking around just diagnosing my friends, talking about their problems together. Like I, I see a therapist. Yeah. I saw her today at one o'clock. She's amazeballs. I see her every two weeks, like clockwork. Um, wow. And I don't hear voices. I'm not clinically depressed. I don't have a formal diagnosis. I am a human navigating a human experience with some help. Yes, that's good. That's so good, Jess. Like, it's for one, I love to hear when a therapist says, I see my own therapist because I think it's healthy. I, I, would, I would assume if I'm, you know, up here telling people and helping them in their, in their walk and their, in their healing process, I want to make sure that I'm in the right space to do that. Um, Absolutely. Now, what do you say to the therapist that say, you know what, I, I, I don't need a therapy therapist. So, you know, I've got all the help I need when I was in school. You a lie. <laughs> you a lie, a whole lie, a whole entire big flaming marquee light lie. We, a all need, we need somebody to help us navigate through this experience yeah. and the work that we do and things that we see require some level of unloading. Yeah. Um, and if you don't believe in what you're doing, why are you doing it? Mm. Like if you're too good for therapy, you're probably too good for to be a therapist as well. Like I really, really believe, and I, I was a person who didn't believe I went to therapy for a very long time. So I'm saying, cause I was on the other side. Really? So I'm not seeing nobody. I'm just not going to therapy. I'm good. Mm. I don't want to call it school. I got to figure it out. I was a lie, girl. I was a lie. I was a lie. I was a lie. I was a lie. Really? Um, yeah, I was like staunchly opposed for years. Ugh. Years. <laughs> um, and then you get to a point where you're like, I don't, I don't have an answer for this. Mm. I don't really know how to navigate this. Like at one point I stopped seeing couples. I was like, I would choke my husband sometimes. Yeah. I think maybe next to your husband. I'd be wanting to just choke mine out sometimes. Just clean, <laughs> choke him out. Like just yeah. And yes. I love him. He's an amazing man. He is yes. my favorite person on the planet. Yes. And this is I'd be wanting to just choke him clean out. Mm. So I was like, I can't see couples talk, talk about your problems. But I want to choke mine. So I was yes. like, this is this is a problem. Not that I'm violent. I'm not violent to my husband. Just like the idea of like I'd be okay with choking him one time. Like I'd be cool with that. Like just yes. the thought. Like I'd be okay choking him. Like that's not a normal rational thought you know what i'm saying yeah. like mm -hmm. so when i was like okay well i can't do as well i do for myself i stopped treating couples okay because i see patterns in me that in treatment i would have somebody address mm. i will not be hypocrite and see couples when i feel like this has gone to my husband i mean i don't feel that way presently um right. and when i did it was very fleeting something happened he knew i want to oh i'm show you like it's just very like yeah very like Trina thuggish, like you know now, like it's like it was very like you had those, those little moments that baby on a thug which just kind of pop up the little three or five moments trying to get you the little nutty puppy. Who are you talking to? And you kind of get your role in the relationship. Um, but yes. I had to realize that there were parts of me that are very nutty but that are very much like what you want to. 
Okay. <laughs> like, if I was referring to me that are not that are not under the blood, I'd be like, run up if you want. Right. To right. Um, and Listen, he said, I I ain't redeemed from nothing. I'm redeemed from something. <laughs> ma'am, ma'am, you can get these hands if you want to. Um, and like having to understand like that narrative to even want to resort to violence as a 30 plus year old female involved in ministry, it was like that is a problematic thought process to go back to. My flesh is like, girl, go do it mm. so i was like there are things that i could pray and fast and shundo and roll around and like i'm not saying that just like i'm pentecostal so we roll around like for real for real right. um but like there's certain things that unless i slay them in my flesh no amount of shouting hooping and hollering and and praise breaks is gonna get me right like i have to go through and really address the issues of my humanity and when i was able to separate like my christianness air quote from like and my clinicalness air quote from jessica I was like, Jessica might walk with walk with. I need other mm. experts. I'm an expert being just I know how to be Jessica. I'm good at that. I figured this thing out. Right. But there are parts of me that are confusing to me or that I may not understand in their entirety why they show up and how they show up that way. Why do I want to show this man? This is a good man. This is a real, real good man. Mm. Why do I want to choke him? It's not even like because he ain't put the dish. Like our biggest argument to date in our marriage was he didn't put the cups where I thought they belonged. So I put the short cups on one row upside down and the taller cups on the next row and then the coffee was above. He did the dishes. We were early in our marriage and put all the cups together. Mm. I was like, you, where are you? Like I went slap off. Wow. Like I was ready like to legit throw hands. And he was like, girl, you worked all day long. You came home to a clean house and just away. All you noticed is that the cups weren't together. Yes. And I was like, mm, ouch. You yes. know, after so many ouch moments, you realize that you need somebody else to help walk through life with you because what you believe to be normal and okay and healthy may not be. Your mom mm. and I did not know everything. Mm, that's good. Um, there's, a, there's a thing one of my girlfriends said to me a couple months ago and she was like, um, she was doing something with her mom and she did it this way. She's like, no, we always put this in the, we always cook it this way. Why? Grandma did it. And they end up going to grandma and goes, oh, well, I didn't have a pot big enough. But they've been doing this for years because when grandma was doing it, her pot wasn't big enough. Right. So they've been passing this off this way. And then she was like, no, I just didn't have a big enough pot. Yeah. And we pass things off as culture and norms because it's just the way that was without asking any questions. Mm. So it's really important that we question some of our norms. Like, is it more important that the dishes are done and the house is clean that, or that the cups are in the right order? Yeah. Or that I honor my husband or that I keep peace in my home and little things like that. When you are so determined to be right or have things done in a certain way, that's normative to you. You may need somebody to kind of walk through and explore those norms with you and kind of say, okay, well, why do you tick that way? Why is that normal for you? Why can you not slow down? Mm. Why are you a perfectionist? Why does this bother you? Yeah. And when you start to kind of unpack and unfold who you believe yourself to be, you mm. may find who you were destined to be under the whole time. And of all the things that I've done, whether it's therapy or church or yoga or mindfulness or whatever, there's a space for all of them, but there's something beautiful intimate about letting somebody see you mm. and all of your parts vulnerably and letting them walk alongside you to healing and that's what therapy yeah. does yeah. this is hey this is who i am broken battered smudged torn fallen apart and this is where i'm at and this is where i would like some help where i see a problem not where my mom's problem, but where i decided i want to get some help and healing here and this is what I have to bring to the table. Like, let's work together collaboratively to get me to the outcome that I desire. And that is the beauty and the magic of therapy. Wow. 
Jess, that's a word. That's a man. I feel like you have preached to me and preached to the listeners because half of what you said, if not all, it's like Jessica, that's right, because that's why I went to therapy. You know what I mean? And it's so true. Why are these small things triggering you, Luanda, or whatever the case may be? And it's like if people can hear your hear this conversation, y'all, if y'all out here, if you hear this conversation, keep in mind that everything that Jessica said is it's not a bad thing. It's a human experience, what she just said. And even if it is a mental illness, that's okay too, because there are people who are out here willing, that's their profession. They went to school just to see people like you and I. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and I love the aspect of, hey, there's boundaries. When I'm in church, I am, I am Sister Jessica, and that's who I'm going to be. When I am in my office, I mm-hmm. am a therapist. The mm-hmm. supervisor, how is the supervisor other therapists? Do they sometimes say they know this? I love it. I think it is really, really cool. Um, I think particularly because when I was coming up as a therapist, mm-hmm. I only knew one black female licensed clinician. Her name was Karen Longsworth, and Karen's an amazing clinician. I know it wants to look like me in the field, and she was a she is a force to be reckoned with. Sis is bad as she wanted to be. Really? She is a phenomenal clinician, an amazing mother, a dope human and I was like wait a minute you are the only second color in all the sea of whiteness yeah and she was so dope and so and she is to this day so true to herself and I was like I want to show other younger clinicians I've been in the game now since 2003 mm-hmm. um I've been I've had my master's since 2011. I've been licensed since 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen some things. And even when I spoke for Barry University, and we, I did a thing for them because they are doing like, they're trying to make up hours for their students because of mm-hmm. COVID. They can't be in, they can't be in, like right. the, in the in the field. Mm-hmm. So I did a thing for like 250 people. At the end, they turned the cameras on. When I tell you I bawled like a baby, there was mm-hmm. old white men, young black girls, um, you could tell there was non-binary people in the room. Like it was just such a sea of difference. And when I went to school, it didn't look nothing like that. Wow. The field looks nothing like what it looked like when I was coming up. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, 17 years ago. It just feels like forever. No, um, that just sound like a daggone <laughs> long time. Um, but like I remember, like it was it was not the norm to see young black females or young black people or black people in general in the field in roles of administrators or leaders or supervisors or being able to teach and train and I counted a privilege to be able to reach back to those who will have something more than Claire Huxtable to look up to. I, was about to, I literally had Claire Huxtable up until recently like where I was like oh my gosh I got some real goats in my corner. Um, so I count it an honor and a privilege. It is probably one of my favorite things to do is work with other clinicians because mm-hmm. one, I can show them that it's possible, mm-hmm. um, that they can literally do or be whoever they dag on, please. Like they yeah. can treat whoever, whatever, create modalities, train, speak, whatever that particular thing is. Like there is literally no cap. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, watching clinicians like bloom and like come into themselves, find their voice, throw away like all of the should, woulds, and coulds of like, this is how this modality has to be delivered. I gotta be like in three-piece suit. I got to come to the office in like ripped t-shirts and, and, and jeans. Yes. And kill it because they're yeah. just themselves. Like, I think it's important on our website, we have clinicians that have tattoos, that have bright color, blonde hair, treat mm-hmm. trans people like, and I'm just like, 
that's so important that you have been able to find yourself as a person, even more as a clinician. So like, it is literally one of my greatest pleasures and honors to help other clinicians evolve because that means when I look to my left and to my right, there's more competent faces that understand and can say me too and walk through like, oh yeah, I remember my mom beat me for that. Or I was told, you know, children are seen and not heard. And mm. though I can't find my voice, Oh, I understand that because I didn't know that I was an adult till dag all my mortgage started getting paid. I got a master's degree. Like and then I'm like, oh wait, I'm an adult. I can slam doors in this place, you know? Yes. And things that were taught um from such a young age that teaches us not to have a voice. Mm. And therapy allows you to learn to find that voice, yeah. to figure out what makes Jessica tick, what makes LaWanda tick, what makes all of the pieces and parts work together. That is important. Um, and doing that for other clinicians that will then in turn do that for the world. Yeah. It's like, it is one of those things that I feel touches like years and years beyond me. It is one of my greatest honors. Yeah. And I think that's what makes you even a quality therapist. Cause it's like, Hey, this is what I like to do. You know, I'm not forced. I've seen some therapists that are like, I don't, I don't like it. I want to be in public safety. And I was like, what, what are you doing? And you know, as a therapist there, <laughs> So mm-hmm. I think that's what makes the therapist so good. And, and even that aspect of coming in as yourself, you don't have to come in dressed to the T for somebody to feel like, oh, she knows what she's talking about. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's our engagement, it's our interaction. Jessica, I'm telling you, I have been, I've enjoyed this talk so much. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way, y'all, to be Jessica Jefferson back on this podcast. because. <laughs> just the wealth of knowledge and encouragement just any last words or comments that you got for the people i would say find a therapist um and just like i know this doesn't fit keep trying like you're not gonna you're not gonna always mesh with somebody the first time out um there are things like therapy for black girls black female therapist.com openpathcollective.com for low cost therapy for those that are underinsured or mm-hmm. don't have access to be able to pay a buck 75 for sessions. Um, thank you for black men. There are a lot of resources that will allow you. And like the Loveland Foundation right now is giving out four free sessions um, to see a clinician prior practice. As is black female therapist, they're giving out three free sessions. Mm-hmm. Boris L. Hansen Foundation, there are places you can go through and find competent clinicians. Spend some time going through, call your insurance and ask, who do you have that sees this, that does this, you know? Or just, I'm just tired all the time. Like, you don't have to be like, I'm depressed. I want to kill myself to come to therapy. Like, mm-hmm. I just want to talk about how my Tuesdays go. I have this big mm-hmm. meeting on Tuesday. I get anxious before my meeting. Um, mm-hmm. So really just find someone somewhere to talk to. Yeah. Um, and don't go get a life coach. Like, get somebody that's going to help you with your mental health, like, for real. No shade to life coaches, but, like, actually someone who will help you really navigate your life experience yeah. with some, like, frameworks and things that are in place in order to really help you navigate that. Yeah. Um, and be okay with having things that have happened to you that change how you respond to the world. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, I that was my takeaway, y'all. I mean, if y'all didn't take away nothing, I took away that. That therapy is, getting in therapy is not hard. Do your research. And you may not find the, the right one on the first go around, but that's okay. Because Jessica just lists a wealth of resources, which I'm going to put into the comment section after our podcast. Thank you, Jessica, so much <clears throat> for just... Coming on here with Renewing Minds, we are forever grateful. We are forever, we are forever grateful for you. Renewing Minds, people, thank you so much for listening. I hope y'all got something out of just because I did. And make sure you tune in and keep your fingers crossed and pray that we'll get Jessica back on here, right? So thank you guys. Keep supporting us. Bye.